0: A
1: world of difference. You're with NITV Radio on mobile, online and on radio.
2: We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV Radio broadcasts from, the Kamaragal people and their elders past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea. From fresh water to salt water. Yuri I'm your host, Luana Grant, and welcome to NITV Radio for this Friday, the 10th of November. Coming up on today's show, NITV Radio chats to director, producer, and writer of the documentary Audrey Napanenka, Penny McDonald, which will be airing premiering on NITV this Sunday evening. Also coming up on today's show, we share a story about Australia's biggest killer, cancer, which is taking the lives of 135 people every day. To combat this, the federal government has launched its first ever national strategy in a bid to address the gaps in care. And we share the top stories of the week from NITV News. All these stories and more coming to you after the latest NITV News wrap-up. Australia
3: Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy The native title legislation must be amended.
4: And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came.
0: I am sorry.
2: The Australian government is set to invest in an Indigenous-led research into domestic and family violence as part of a national strategy to end violence against First Nations women and children. The funding will be used to create a data set that will provide a national picture of First Nations women and children, as well as culturally sensitive data collection and reporting practices. Ms Ridgeworth says an improved evidence framework will also allow the government to better track the progress of the initiative. Western Australia's government has agreed to a historic $180.4 million settlement to address the decade-long injustice of wages stolen from thousands of Aboriginal workers between 1936 and 1972. The state will also issue a public acknowledgement and apology in Parliament at the end of the month to surviving and deceased Aboriginal workers. The settlement is subject to approval by the Federal Court of Australia, with the court to decide the exact amount of each claimant. Vicky Ansel Latos from Shine Lawyers, who represented the claimants, says she hopes the class action can inspire greater understanding of the experiences of Aboriginal people in the state. The workers and their descendants suffered intergenerational disadvantage because of the
5: legislation that was. In place in the state of Western Australia over many decades which affected the lives and livelihoods of Aboriginal people.
2: A remote Indigenous community in Western Australia is renewing its calls for the state government to improve the quality of local drinking water linking poor health to the water quality. Nitrate levels have been high for a number of years in the Goldfields region of Laverton. The organic compound is commonly found in groundwater a drinking water quality report by local supplier Water Corporation found that over the past decade, nitrate levels peaked at nearly 40 milligrams per litre in 2020 in the Laverton Shire. That is 15 times higher when compared to the Perth suburb of Wanneroo. Wongatha Wonganara Elder Annette Stokes told SBS it's frustrating to residents that the problem hasn't been addressed.
6: Sad and angry because, you know, we spoke to them not, lots of time around the table too and um, explain all that we can and all
4: we're saying you know is fix it help us fix it and um with our
7: elders and even our people you know young people and all you know they coming up and having kidney problems and it's a terrible thing
2: The Prime Minister has joined leaders from 18 Pacific nations at the Pacific Islands Forum Leaders' Meeting in the Cook Islands. This will be Mr Albanese's first visit to the Cook Islands as Prime Minister and his second time attending a leaders' meeting at the PIF of which Australia is a founding member. The meeting's agenda includes steps to deliver the 2050 strategy for the Blue Pacific continent, which focuses on regional solutions to issues like climate change and security. Mr Albanese says security matters in the region will also be discussed, including China's closer diplomatic ties with the Solomon Islands.
7: One of the things about uh, the Pacific Island Forum is that we have recognised in last year's statement the importance of the Pacific family uh, looking after our security interests of the region. But the Pacific family is also made up of sovereign states, so we respect Uh, the fact that sovereign states have a right to make uh, their decisions.
2: Cybersecurity experts say a national Optus outage highlights the fragility of Australia's communication network. Optus has said its engineers are investigating a network fault which has seen millions of Australian businesses and mobile phone users unable to make or receive calls and mobile internet down. Federal Communications Minister Michelle Rowland has said the outage appeared to be a deep and significant network problem, while an Optus spokesman said the company was working to restore services as a priority. CEO of the Cybersecurity Cooperative Research Centre, Rachel Falk, says the outage, which also saw Melbourne train services interrupted, is unprecedented in scale. As we see the fragility of the Telco network, it connects everyone
5: to everything. It connects uh, obviously train services, uh, hospitals, internet, um, phone services and it's from, you know, right from Cairns to Melbourne to Perth to
2: across here to the East Coast. Optus customers will receive 200 gigabytes of extra data as part of the Telco giant's apology following the lengthy outage that affected millions of Australians and disrupted the nation's emergency services and businesses. Optus chief executive Kelly Bayer Rosmarin acknowledged that customers had been let down and it was integral for them to be connected in the modern world. As part of the company's apology, Optus customers will have access to 200 gigabytes of extra data for free over the next few months. The United Nations says nearly 10,000 civilians have been killed in Ukraine since the beginning of the war in February of 2022. Assistant Secretary-General Miroslav Jenka briefed the Security Council on the ongoing effects on the civilian population.
0: We continue to condemn in the clearest terms all attacks against civilians and civilian infrastructure, no matter where they take place and no matter who is responsible. Such attacks are prohibited under international humanitarian law. They are unacceptable and must cease immediately.
2: The UN has also condemned the large civilian toll in the month-long war between Israel and Hamas. The death toll in Gaza over the last 30 days surpassed 10,000, according to the Hamas-controlled Ministry of Health. More than 1,400 people were killed in Israel as a result of the October 7 Hamas attack. United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres says more must be done to stop the deaths of civilians.
1: Gaza is becoming a graveyard for children. Hundreds of girls and boys are reportedly being killed or injured every day. More journalists have reportedly been killed over a four-week period than in any conflict in at least three decades. More United Nations aid workers have been killed than in any comparable period in the history of our organization.
2: Jewish groups in Australia have marked the one-month anniversary of the attack that sparked the latest stage of the long-running Israel-Hamas conflict by calling for peace. In Canberra, Jewish prayers of mourning have been said for both Israelis and Palestinians. Event organiser Corinne Fagaret says despite the insistence of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu that there cannot be a ceasefire, many Jews disagree. There are many people in Israel calling for a ceasefire, And from my own conversations within the Jewish community, I know that there are many Australian Jews that feel the same way. And in football, a new collective bargaining agreement will allow top Matildas and Socceroos players to earn up to $200,000 per year, even outside of the World Cup campaigns. That is a significant increase from the base wage of the $110,000 Tier 1 contracted Matildas earned under the previous deal. As part of the new agreement, which runs until 2027, central contracts for Matildas players have been scrapped in favour of match payments equal to those enjoyed by the Socceroos. 70% of player payments will be derived from the match fees and a further 30% will come from commercial payments. Carers for the children of players up to the age of four rather than two will be given accommodation as part of a deal FA Chief Executive James Johnson described as globally unique. Football Australia and the Professional Footballers Association have also agreed to work on a human rights policy. And that is NITV's news wrap-up of the week.
5: conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV radio.
3: Hey guys, uh, Jackie White now, Proud Baradjali man, you're listening to NITV radio. Let's go.
5: on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio.
2: Welcome back. I'm your host, Luana Grant, and you're listening to NITV Radio. Still to come on the show, I chat to the director, producer and writer of the documentary, Audrey Napanenka, Penny McDonald, which will be premiering on NITV this Sunday. And we share a story about Australia's biggest killer, cancer, which is taking the lives of 135 people every day as the federal government launches its first ever national strategy in a bid to address the gaps in care. But first, we share some of the top stories of the week from NITV. TV News. A landmark legal case against the Australian government over the impacts of climate change on the Torres Strait has recommenced in the federal court. Two elders from the region have travelled to Nam, Melbourne, as they continue their campaign to sue the Commonwealth for failing to prevent climate change, which they say is destroying their homelands. Tanisha Williams with this report.
6: Uncles Paul Pubai and Pubai Pubai receiving a warm welcome to Nam Melbourne, where they continue their legal fight for their island's survival in the federal court.
8: It's very important that uh, we're standing here, uh, myself and Uncle Paul, at the painting to take this climate change mm-hmm. to tackle. It's a betterment for our future, uh, future generation.
6: They filed the case against the Australian government in 2021 after decades of watching rising sea levels take over their homelands in the Torres Strait. In June this year, the court travelled to Boigu, Saibai and Badu Islands to hear on-country evidence from traditional owners before the next phase of hearings in Melbourne.
8: Where will, where will we go from Yeah, we, Our islands will go underwater. But this is why it is important for us to keep knocking on the government's door. Let them hear from us the needs, what our needs are. Over the next few
6: weeks, the court will hear evidence from climate science experts on the impacts of climate change and rising sea levels in the Torres Strait. Australia's contribution to global greenhouse gas emissions will also be examined.
4: This case is not simply a a case to be adjudicated at the court. It is a deeply, deeply moral issue. And we hope and pray that it can be judged as a moral question.
6: Almost 9,000 people live in the Torres Strait and there are more than 200 islands between Cape York Peninsula and Papua New Guinea. But only 17 are inhabited, with some as little as a metre above sea level.
8: And I pray that all of us who are being advocates of challenging the um, climate change throughout throughout the world and throughout here in Australia. It's going to be a fruitful time for us when the decisions are made. Fighting
6: to protect 65,000 years of knowledge and culture from climate change. Tanisha Williams, NITV News.
2: A new program aimed at getting more mob to work in the legal sector has just finished its first intake. 18 First Nations students have graduated, with with all of them receiving nationally accredited qualifications to pursue careers in the field. Ricky Kirby with this report.
1: Bunjalung and Wiradjuri woman Simone Roberts is a client support officer at Legal Aid New South Wales. She's one of 18 graduates of a new program to increase the number of Aboriginal people working in the law sector.
4: It was a really good experience. Very positive, very supported, um, and very challenging. But overall, I think it was a fantastic program.
1: It's called the Aboriginal Legal Career Pathways Program, and is a partnership between Legal Aid New South Wales, TAFE New South Wales, and Macquarie University.
9: Students complete a legal services qualification at TAFE New South Wales while working at Legal Aid New South Wales. Uh, After graduating, participants can choose to do a Graduate Certificate of Law through Macquarie University. They can also do a Juris Doctor degree, uh, all of which are fully funded by a scholarship from Macquarie University Law School.
4: Within the month, we would spend three weeks at Legal Aid working in our roles. My role was Client Support Officer and we would spend one week at Study Block at TAFE.
1: Latest research from the Law Society Journal suggests that less than 1% of solicitors in Australia identify as First Nations.
9: 23% of Legal Aid's clients are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, so improving the representation in the sector will ensure the best outcomes for Aboriginal people.
1: Simone is now planning to continue through the program pathway to become a solicitor.
4: As an Aboriginal woman growing up in an Aboriginal community, I saw a lot of my people go through the justice system and I thought, well... You know, I think it's it's only fair that everyone um, learns about their legal rights and if I can make a difference, then I'm more than
1: happy to do so. The opportunity is open again to applicants next year.
9: We are planning another intake next year. We don't have a set date yet, but anybody who is interested in the program can keep an eye out on our website for updates.
4: I would absolutely recommend um, and I hope that I inspire the next... Generation of Indigenous and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, people to do the program.
1: Ricky Kirby, NITV News.
2: A Perth business has teamed up with one of WA's best First Nations cricketers to launch a custom cricket kit featuring Aboriginal artwork. It's hoped the kit will inspire more Indigenous young people to take up the game. Kieran Cox has more.
0: WA's Indigenous cricket captain Bevan Bennell sports a unique set of gear. He's created the Budia kit, meaning boss in Noongar language. It features artwork from Bevan's sister-in-law.
1: Because obviously when you're out there and you're holding the bat you know you want to you want to show the bowler <clears throat> who's boss and <laughs> yeah if you can get on top you know and hit 100 you feel like a boss you know
0: the 27 year old plays a grade cricket in the remote goldfields region of southeast wa it's his first season playing with the custom kit
1: go out and play against them and seeing them use my kind of kit you know like. It's, Oh it's, <laughs> I can't say I've ever dreamt of it, but um, yeah, no it's huge. It's all you know, We're makes most me pretty proud of what I'm doing and uh yeah, hopefully get a few more guys wearing it.
0: The company Bevan partners with supplies sporting gear to more than sixty clubs in Western Australia and aims to make it more affordable for younger kids walking in Bevan's footsteps. A lot
7: of young kids will look at this and they will obviously you know, see this art coming onto the actual gear on
0: actual gear will definitely inspire them to to obviously yes, buy the gear, but at the same time utilize the gear, use it on the cricket field, and inspire other people as well to,
1: to join the cricket.
0: A cricket academy for indigenous kids in the Goldfields region is a part of the plan.
1: Hopefully, they see see the kit. You know, feel a bit more comfortable coming down and giving it a crack because you know that's what it's all about.
0: Celebrating the balance between sport and culture. Karen Cox, NITV News.
2: The first Aboriginal woman to run a cattle station in Australia is preparing to retire. Bidra woman Kileen Mailman has been managing a property near Charlieville, West Western Queensland, for almost 30 years. And as she calls time on her career, she regrets the state government hasn't done more to get young offenders onto country like hers, where they can heal and break the cycle.
8: Keelan Mailman is a mother, grandmother and an author. She also manages a 180,000-acre cattle station, largely by herself.
3: It's been a huge job, a lot of learnings and stuff at the start, a lot of heartaches.
8: The Bidra woman's been running the cattle property Gurudanta, or Mount Tabor, for 26 years. She's loved it since she first stepped foot here, although she admits it's been a steep learning curve. I didn't know how to use a chainsaw.
3: So I got sick of cutting me firewood with the axe and I thought, oh God, truth, there's got to be a a better way than this. So I just learnt to use the chainsaw, learnt the fencing. So basically everything from the day I ever stepped foot on here was all a big learning for me.
8: When I visit her at Gurudanta, Keelan tells me it's a healing place. She feels the responsibility of looking after it but also being the first Aboriginal woman to run a cattle station.
3: I had elders that said to me I was keeper of
8: country, keeper of knowledge, and that means a lot. It's clear Keelan is a woman who cares for others, be it her children, her ancestors, or even unborn future generations by protecting country. Keelan hopes low-level offenders will one day find the help they need here instead of cycling through the prison system. It sort of breaks my heart that government are not listening. They're wanting
3: blackfellas to help themselves, but blackfellas are trying to help themselves because country is the best form of healing for our people. Um, You know, for them to feel good about themselves again, for them to get skills that we were offering to to give to them going back into the community. Um, But we just haven't gotten anywhere. I just don't understand to this day why we still haven't gotten anywhere.
8: The clock is ticking. After 26 years, she's finally preparing to slow down and step back and make way for new generations of Bidra to help realise the station's destiny. Mount
3: Tabor's been a huge part of me and, and... You know, I'll always be a huge part of Mount Tabor, but I'm not getting any younger. So I'm hoping that we've got some up-and-coming Bidjara young couples out there that um, could take on this big job.
5: Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio.
2: Welcome back. I'm your host, Luana Grant. Still to come, I chat to Penny McDonald, the director, producer, and writer of the documentary Audrey Napanenka, premiering this Sunday on NITV. But first, cancer is Australia's biggest killer, taking the lives of 135 people every single day. To combat this, the federal government has launched its first ever national strategy to bid in a bid to to address the gaps in care. Professor Jacinta Elston considers herself fortunate. She was 33 when she found a lump in her breast.
6: My youngest child was uh, not yet one, so it was a pretty uh, different and devastating experience, really, in regional North Queensland. I'm blessed to still be here 20 years later, um, particularly given that you know, nearly 45% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are diagnosed do... Um, do not make it past their cancer. She now serves as the
2: Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Cancer Control Chair for Cancer Australia. Drawing from her experiences, she's helped Cancer Australia develop the country's first national cancer plan. The plan covers all cancer types with a key focus on First Nations people.
1: Cancer is like a dark cloud hanging over our mob. Every day, five of us are diagnosed with the disease. We're more likely to be diagnosed with cancer than non-Indigenous Australians. But the good news is we have a plan to help turn this around. The Australian Cancer Plan is a new step in the right direction for our mob's fight against cancer.
2: Launched in Melbourne, the 10-year strategy seeks to improve outcomes. Along with achieving equity for First Nations people, the plan aims to maximise cancer prevention and early detection, ensure better consumer experiences and transform the delivery of care. CEO of Cancer Australia, Professor Dorothy Keefe, says there needs to be streamlined access
8: to treatment. We need to focus on uh, making sure that that we do the things we already know how to do properly um, and that we don't put roadblocks in the way of smooth care. The issue of access to
2: adequate cancer treatment remains especially difficult for those living in rural and remote areas. Associate Professor Craig Underhill serves as Cancer Services Director at the Albury-Wodonga Regional Cancer Centre. He says outcomes for cancer patients are markedly worse in the regions.
5: Our cancer outcomes in metropolitan Australia are amongst the best in the world, but once you go into remote uh, Australia, regional Australia, in general the outcomes are about 10% worse.
2: He says there could be a number of reasons for this, but he often finds patients are hesitant to pursue treatment options that would require them heading to major cities for care.
5: We don't know why it is. Is it just the geography? Is it lack of access to services? Or is there a socioeconomic overlay as well? Um, But I know as someone who works in regional Australia, um, anecdotally I see all the time uh, people make decisions not to Uh, access care if the care has to a particular specialty uh, treatment that is only available in metropolitan Australia.
2: With more than 164,000 Australians estimated to be diagnosed this year, the government says the strategy is not only about improving survival rates. Health Minister Mark Butler says they want to foster a better healthcare system that is easy to navigate.
1: This plan is directed at making sure that not only the outcomes, the survival rates, are as good as we possibly can get given the available technology and treatments nowadays, but also that the experience, the ability to navigate a complex healthcare system is as good as it possibly can be.
2: That story was by Sam Dover and Francesca DiNuccio for SBS News. We'll be back with more after the break.
5: Conversation on radio, online, and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. NITV Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1 pm or anytime online.
0: Nicka Hines here, Rajri Mob, you listen to NITV Radio.
2: Welcome back, you're with NITV Radio. This Sunday evening at 8.30pm, NITV will premiere its latest commission, feature-length documentary, Audrey Napanenka. Filmed over the course of 10 years, the intimate documentary tells the story of Walprey matriarch Audrey Napanenka and her Sicilian partner, Santo, as they navigate through colonial systems to keep the children they care for together in the Central Australian Desert. The documentary showcases a heartwarming story about the power of kinship and family. Recently, I caught up with director, producer and writer of the documentary, Penny McDonald, who has known Audrey for 40 years and chats to me about their friendship, the making of the documentary and some of the intimate moments shared by Audrey and her family. (laughs) Today I'm joined by the director, producer and writer of the documentary Audrey Napanenka, Penny MacDonald. Penny, thanks so much for your time today. Oh, thank you for having me on. Firstly, can you tell us a little bit about the documentary Audrey Napanenka?
7: Yes, well, it's a documentary about Audrey, as the name says, who's a good friend of mine and I decided to turn the camera on her because she's just such an uh, amazing woman and it'll surprise audiences because it's a little different to what they might expect um, in a documentary about a person like Audrey. So it's, it's. I hope it's a catalyst for conversations.
2: And as you mentioned, you and Audrey have a beautiful friendship. You've known each other for over, I think, over 40 years. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, where did you first meet? And can you tell us a little bit about your friendship over the years?
7: Yeah, sure. We met when uh, we were both young and as Audrey says, she was skinny. Um, <laughs> back in in Lajumano, which is a community in the middle of Australia, at the top of the Tanami Desert, it's northwest of Mbantua, Alice Springs, where we both live now. So I met Audrey there. Um, I was there working as a teacher, um, and also I was making beginning to make films. And Audrey was operating the um, radio, uh, the radio telephone. So to ring people, you had to go through Audrey, and I was. I'd gone there like most of my family was in um, New South Wales at that point. And so I was often using the phone and Audrey was always there and she was a bubbly personality and we just got to know each other. And then later on, I left there. I left there to pursue my film career and she left there for various reasons and ended up in Alice Springs not that long after I left the community, a couple, um, probably a year or so later. And then she, as an artist, she's a practicing artist and, um, she would come to Sydney and, um, and we'd catch up when she was in Sydney. She'd come to visit my house several times and meet my children and, and we also began to, um, make films together. Like, um, yeah, Audrey is brave and, um, I was in Alice Springs doing a, a film with Erica Glynn, who's a well-known filmmaker, and um, we needed somebody to, to act in it. And I thought, well, who'd do that? There weren't many First Nations actors in around here at that time. And I thought oh, Audrey would have a go at it, which she did. And from that, after that, she had lots of small
2: parts in many different
7: films and TV series to this day.
2: And where did the idea come from to make this documentary and why did you want to create it?
7: Well, I just, um, because I've known Audrey for a long time, I just saw her as a very resilient person and I admired the way she is because I, I've i been living in Alice Springs for 20 years and I just saw what was happening with Audrey sometimes with, say, um, institutions and systems and things like that, like the health department or the schools and, and she was always bringing up children and sometimes there were challenges and I just saw how she dealt with those and I sometimes thought, wow, Audrey, you're so resilient. Like you bounce back with a spring in your step and tell me a joke and yet these terrible things are happening around you and within your family and um I just really admired that and I thought people need to know about people like Audrey. Like I think, you know, everyone's got an interesting story in their in their lives. I truly believe that. But Audrey Um, I thought was particularly interesting. Also, because she's married to a Sicilian, so it was that cross-cultural relationship as well and um, her interactions with lots of Walbury people, but also non-Walbury people, like people that come to Alice Springs, for example, doctors, nurses and so on. She'll take them out on cultural trips or when tourists come to town, sometimes they come to her house to buy paintings and that type of thing. And so she was just a person who I just thought was... Really interesting,
2: yeah, I definitely want to touch on language and culture a little bit later, but the documentary was filmed over the course of ten years, which is pretty amazing. How did this work, and can you tell us a little bit about the filming process?
7: Sure, um, well, you know, I initially did some filming and um, and then of the young children when they were quite young with Audrey and Audrey talking a bit about her life and then we were trying to get funding. You know, we got some development funding and then we'd film a bit more and then we get a bit more funding and film a bit more. But really it was just a case of when there were things happening in Audrey's life that I thought were interesting and that she was happy to be filmed, then I'd either get, grab the camera myself or if I could, I'd get various other people to film. it. So it was very much a stop-start process over several years until, um, say, about four years ago, we... Um, you know, we got the funding, the production funding, and then we had a dedicated um, shoot of a, a few weeks um, with a with a crew. Before that was sort of not, not hit and miss, but just something was happening, I think, oh, that needs to be filmed.
4: Mm. Yeah.
2: So you kind of combined it, um, the stuff that you filmed and then obviously this when you started filming over the last few years, just kind of pulling all of that together.
7: That's right. And then, then I went back after I'd pulled all that together and we'd started editing. And the editing did take a long time partly because it's a complex story and multi-layered so it took a long time but then only when we got towards the end of the edit I always knew I wanted to do some Super 8 um, footage to represent Audrey's past because of course we didn't have we had footage of the community we managed to find through the Baptist Church amazing footage of Uendamu where she was growing up but not of Audrey herself Um, although we did find a really lovely photo of her when she was a teenager but so to recreate those times, I used Super 8 because I really loved the, the feel and texture of Super 8. And it was sort of more similar to the 16mm film that the, um, the actual archive that we got through the Baptist Church uh, mm. was shot on.
2: And Audrey talks about the children her and her partner, Santo, have raised together and the love of family and providing a safe place for children to stay. And they've taken care of and raised more than 30 foster children in the Northern Territory. Can you talk to us a little bit about the importance of family and connection throughout the documentary?
7: Yes. And I'll just say they're not actually foster children. They're not officially fostered in that sense. They're Mm -hmm. children that are part of Audrey's family. And sometimes they might have them for a short time, like for a year or for several months while um while the family might be going through a difficult time and, and needs some help and they so they've provided a place where children, you know, have food and shelter and they get them to school and that sort of thing for, for many years and for many children. And I guess Santo being Sicilian, coming from that Mediterranean culture, he just loves children as well. He comes from a family of fourteen. His mother had 14 children, so he always was surrounded by lots of children and cousins and all the rest. So he fits into that world very well as well. And But Audrey takes the um, this role of helping children very seriously. In the documentary, she's part of a group of grandmothers that go to Canberra to protest about child removal. When I first met Audrey, which were, you know she would have been um, 25 or something like that, she was already looking after children that, that were family.
2: And can you talk to us about the importance of language and cultural practices that we see throughout the documentary? At the start, Audrey references my kids know three ways, while pre-English and Italian. And as we mentioned, Audrey's partner, Santo, is Italian from Sicily. Can you talk a little bit about the cultural elements of the documentary as well?
7: Yes, Um so the, the Walbury language and like language and culture are intertwined. So Audrey speaks mostly Walbury with the children. Um, they speak English as well, but she generally in the, in the home, she's speaking Walbury with the children. And of course, when, when they go out on country, um, song, dance, all of that is, um, is in Walbury. Um, and the children, um, all speak Walbury and understand Walbury as well because um, other, other people visit the house all the time, you know, family, that, extended family that live out of town, they come and stay there or visit there or people that live around town. So the language is just so important and that's partly why Audrey is so adamant about, um, you know, children being with their family because if you're removed, you generally lose your language and with your language, you lose your culture.
9: Mm.
2: And the doco touches on very real and important and very tough topics. Audrey opens up and shares a very sad and traumatic time in her life uh, that happened to her when she was a teenager. I obviously don't want to give um, you know too much away for the audience that's listening but can you just talk a little bit about what that was like for Audrey to relive and I guess open up and share and be so vulnerable about uh, t- that time in her life?
7: Well it, it was very sensitive and um, you know I, I, I didn't film anything with Audrey that she wasn't happy to the film but I was aware that we were opening up um, something from Audrey's past that was a very sad time but in that there's also a healing to some degree as well because other family were able to come around and um, provide support because some people didn't know that it happened because they're younger than Audrey. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know it, it's difficult to open these things up but if one is sensitive about it and caring, which I do care about Audrey, then, then it's done in a, in a delicate way.
2: And as you mentioned, Audrey has starred in many films over the years herself, and so I'm guessing she would have been pretty comfortable with having you know, cameras following her around. But what was that like for her family and for the children? Was it a little bit, I guess, like daunting at first, or were they pretty comfortable, you know, I guess, having the cameras following them around? And, you know, over the course of, you know, the many years that you filmed with them, you've obviously got a very close relationship with the family anyway. But what was that like for her family?
7: Well, I think um, for Santo, he likes being on camera and he's also done a lot of filming over the years, just documenting of the family. And some of that footage it was sort of gold that's in the, in the documentary, um, some of the filming he did. So he was comfortable. Um, Miriam's also, she's been in films with Audrey from when she was a young girl. She's gone on lots of trips uh, to different places to be in films and she's also studied media herself. And we gave her a camera to use as well. And we also did that with the younger children. I think when they were younger, it was easier. As they got more towards being teenagers, they were more shy just because teenagers tend to be like that, other than, you know, doing selfies and things on social media now. They were generally comfortable. And if, again, you know, I was sensitive to whether they were okay about being filmed or not. So there's some things we didn't film, obviously.
2: And your son, Dylan River, co-wrote alongside you. What was that process like, having your son um, be a part of the documentary and the process and working together?
7: It was actually terrific and I feel very um, blessed that he was happy to work with me. Mainly um, the writing was more in the editing phase of the documentary and pulling it together and he was very um, patient with the number of um, edits you know the 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 changes over time and um you know he's he's a skilled storyteller and documentary maker and it was great to work with him because when you you know someone really well um you can do things in shorthand in a way mm. you know you can get together quickly and sort of informally away in a way and and look over things and discuss things and, and have ideas the way forward but you know, the documentary wouldn't be what it is without Dylan's involvement, or without anybody's involvement, all the people involved, really.
2: Audrey Napanenka has screened at many film festivals last year, such as Cinefest Oz, the Adelaide Film Festival, Sydney Film Festival, Melbourne and Brisbane International Film Festivals, and has won Best Social Documentary at Beyond Borders International Documentary Festival, and was also a finalist at Sydney Film Festival and the Australian Directors Guild Awards. That's really amazing. What was that like? um, And how was it received by audiences as well?
7: Well, the audience. We also had a small cinema run, so the audiences were great. And Audrey and I travelled around um, to various places in June this year, and it was really great to be there with Audrey with the audience because everybody wanted to meet Audrey after watching it and ask questions. And she was very generous with her energy and, you know, and um, very happy to to meet people and talk to them. And um, as far as when it went uh, shown in Greece, that was amazing because I had no idea. How it would go with an audience that wasn't Australian, because it's a very Australian story, but uh, it won the jury prize, but also the audience just, you know, responded to it really well again with lots of questions.
2: And finally, I want to touch on the impact and call to action. Uh, Audrey Napanenka is an authentic depiction of life in Central Australia, and this is a documentary for change as much as it is a personal story. And I believe you're working on an impact and education campaign and a commitment to making change. Can you just tell us a little bit about that?
7: Yes. I mean, the areas that we really um, want to see um, change is, is support for young people and for families. First Nations families and um, to support Indigenous-led models of support. So, um, you know, that's really important to us. So if we've hooked up with KALIS, Central Australian Youth Link-Up Service, which has been around for a long time and works in remote com- communities with um, young people that have substance abuse issues, but as well does more um, preventative strategies by providing activities for them. And um we're working also with um jailing is failing because the incarceration rate of um, First Nations is so high and it shouldn't be. It would be great to see it reversing. Um, so we're still working with those organisations in going forward and hoping to raise some more funds. The other thing is we have a study guide that will come out um, with the documentary and so we're hoping that the documentary will be shown in schools and universities as discussion starter for conversation. I mean, it's more important now than ever that um, that people get an insight into a life such as Audrey's and how complex it is, because I think most people don't really have any idea of how somebody like Audrey and her family... Um, navigate the world, and um, I mean, documentary is a great medium because you pull back the curtain, so you enter into a life that you otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity to, to engage with.
2: Yeah, definitely. Well, Penny, thank you so much for joining me today on NITV Radio. Thank you very much. My pleasure.
5: Visit sbs.com.au/slash NITV Radio.
10: Welcome everybody to the wild, wild west I hit them with some dopeness, leave them obsessed I'm on this Nah, I'm the one next I, I just chill with stick to the concept yep. Welcome everybody and I'm glad to arrive Have a great time Hope you enjoy the ride Yeah, well, we bring the vibes And we bring the shine job yeah. You just subscribe Make sure that you hear like I've been steady rocking on this mic for a minute huh? All up in the kitchen Making a few dishes okay. Competition missing I don't really see them Stepping up Most of these were set to ask Must be cause we running the mark Money we be Running it up Earn respect Let it enough Heard the sound Love on the buzz Underground to rock Are you ready for this here, box Say Your- for more iconic the Mozart, I hear them talking in the back like they glowing. We see talking on the net like they glowing. I guess what they're really saying is the movement growing. What well, they ain't knowing once so we hunt brass Game yeah, over. For... for anybody with the thought to contest, they the caliber West. we the best. Give us the checks and all the money to flex. Yeah, it's the next step. So, party give it up rest like we the we ones to let you know that. We, we the ones to rock, you that. rock that. your show. That we that. the that. ones to got the flow. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. wait. Hey, yo, Winky B. Yo. I hear them going out there and they're talking about an 11-year-old shouldn't be doing what you're doing. What? You know, they're saying you're too young or something. Really? What, you got a secret or what? Uh, maybe. Let them know, my boy. Well, he said that I like him to disprove I'm a trans, it's a mutant that's moving through human suits Live into me, button, I was born, it's 97, it's financial. 11. Somebody call up the reverend This kid's a weapon A mass destruction Bullet with some butterfly wings Where they're smashing pumpkins We crash your function And leave you with cash reduction So when we blowing up Don't call it no gas combustion Don't you mask a rush this boy bringing that breaking news? hey this dude it let lose I'm gonna raise the yes. proof Which every piece must be saying
9: truth That